Welcome to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, where we talk about modern challenges and future solutions. Brought to you by the Intel Internet of Things Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast today brought to you by Intel. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the show. On this episode, we're talking about convolutions and cross-correlations, which are commonly used in medical imaging, yet are computationally expensive. So today on the podcast, we're going to discuss ways to optimize performance and learn about how the healthcare field, specifically medical imaging, can evolve with various technological advancements, including software. And joining me today here on the podcast is Binash Zia. She is an electrical engineer working as a platform architect in the healthcare and life sciences business at Intel. Beanish, thank you so much for being here today and for joining me here on the podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. We are thrilled to have you on the podcast here today, Beanish. And joining you here on the podcast is a software science. Joy spent the summer interning at Intel in the health and life sciences group. Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Tyler. Excited to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm thrilled to have both of you on the podcast today. And so, Beanish, let's start off here. Tell us about medical imaging and relevant and the relevance of technology to medical imaging. Can you expand on that a little bit? Let me start with definition of medical imaging. The U.S. Food and Drugs Administration defines medical imaging as several different technologies that are used to view the human body in order to diagnose, monitor, or treat medical conditions. Each type of technology gives different information about the area of the body being studied or treated related to possible disease, injury, or the effectiveness of medical treatment. Now, there are many different forms of medical imaging, including ultrasound, such as what many people might have experienced when having a baby, or x-rays that are often used to inspect an injury for broken bones or taken by dentists, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, computed tomography or CT, which can be used for detecting tumors in brain, mammography, which is used for women's health, like detecting breast cancer, and nuclear imaging, like positron emission tomography. Now, coming to relevance of medical imaging, according to Market Insights reports by Research and Markets, the global medical market size is expected to reach US dollar 28.6 billion by 2028. That is expanding at a compounded annual growth rate of 5.2% from today to 2028. Here, technology advancements include a variety of technical elements from the devices that generate the raw data to how data is processed, stored, and transferred before it can be viewed by a radiologist or a healthcare technician. My team and I work very closely to look at all different ways to accelerate these steps after data is generated in medical imaging. There are two major areas that we focus on. Firstly, the software, and secondly, the hardware running the software. So, Binesh, you you talked about software there. Can you give us a brief uh, overview of what you mean by software in medical imaging and maybe give us uh, an example or two of what that looks like? Yeah, over the past few decades, significant progress has been made with different types of software that handle these images. Since the data generated and stored from medical devices is mostly digital, this has resulted in a number of advances in software technologies to aid not only with storage, but with processes like image analysis, which includes aiding radiologists with diagnosis through artificial intelligence augmentation. It also includes things like image processing software that that can be firstly like segmentation of image into smaller parts. Secondly, it could be image registration that allows image to be aligned in the correct manner. 
And lastly, it could be image reconstruction and visualization, which allows viewing of data with greater depth and clarity. Let me give you an example. So um, once the image has been captured by the hardware and software within any of the systems, the next step is to present it and assist it with identifying if there are any issues. Sometimes this requires modifying the or original image to sharpen, blur, do edge detection, and so on. And a common technique for this is called convolution. Alternatively, sometimes it is helpful to scan programmatically the image for sub-signals or some images that are of interest. Often, cross-correlation is used for this. Joyce spent her internship doing work on both these techniques and published a white paper so you mentioned uh, that that paper that you that you you just talked about right there, and you mentioned convolution. Um, uh, can you tell us more on why and how convolution applies to medical imaging? Just just go into a little bit more detail there on, on convolution, and then we'll we'll talk to Joy about uh, about her work as well. Convolution is a mathematical operation that is fundamental to various image processing activities, including medical imaging. In mathematical terms, it can be described as an integral mixing of two functions where one function is overlaid and shifted over another. What that means in image processing is that convolution provides a way of multiplying together two arrays of numbers of same dimensions. Convolution occurs between an input array, which is normally an image, and a second, much smaller array, sometimes called a kernel or filter. For example, if you have an image and you want to blur it, then you can take an array from the image and convolve it with an array creating from the blurring filter to produce the final output. Something that I would like to point out here is when we are talking about convolution, we are talking about convolution as image processing, and this should not be confused with convolution happening between layers in deep neural networks in artificial intelligence applications like convolution neural networks. And to give you an idea about the relevance of convolutions in medical imaging, think about medical imaging modalities like CT, MR, PET, and others. They usually use functions like convolution and fast Fourier transforms, or FFTs, especially in the image reconstruction algorithms. And to give you an idea for an average CT image, you have approximately 700 convolutions per slice of the image. And usually in an average CT scan, there can be 64 or more slices. So we could have roughly 45,000 or more convolutions per scan. Wow, that's that's really incredible, and and and, uh, and what sounds to me, anyways, like a like a really large number. So, Joy, I would love to hear about your work with, with convolutions. But before we can go there, can you tell us a little bit about how convolutions are different than cross correlations that that you heard Venus mention just then? Of course, it's true that convolution and cross correlation share a lot of similar math, but they're actually pretty different in application. And like Venus described earlier, for convolution, cross correlation also involves the same active dragging a filter across the desired image, but this time the filter is flipped. So when executing cross-correlation, for every given pixel, we multiply every value of the filter with the respective pixel value of the image that it aligns with, and we find the sum of all those values, which gives us the correlation coefficient. So the idea is that we can use cross-correlation to find at which point two time series best align with each other by looking for the delay value that has the greatest correlation coefficient. And I use the language of comparing time series, but 
cross-correlation applications in the healthcare space can also be, for example, finding the location of a reference signal and a greater signal from an ultrasound. Well, it really sounds like convolutions can be computer intensive, like we mentioned, Joy. So uh, can you share with us more on how you approached parallelizing um, a, sample a sample convolution code? For sure. You'll hear that the key to parallel programming is effectively distributing your workload over your computational resources at hand. And this essentially means identifying parts of your code that involve conducting the same operation on different pieces of data that run completely independently of each other. So this means that the success or completion of one operation doesn't necessarily rely on the success or completion of that same operation on another piece of data. And so if this is the case, you've probably found a great location in your code to apply parallelism. And so like Beanish described, a function that does convolution will apply a filter to an image by multiplying that filter with every pixel in the image in order to you know, sharpen or blur it, for example. And so coding this would involve multiple for loops, if you're familiar with that, that will iterate through every pixel in the filter for every pixel in the image. And so one can imagine how quickly the number of calculations will increase as the size of the image grows or the size of the media you're working with begins to grow. And so running these calculations linearly is pretty excessive and unnecessary. And so this brute force convolution algorithm I just described is a perfect place to apply the criteria for parallel programming. You know, why run each calculation one after the other when we can run them on multiple threads all at the same time? So what did you use to achieve this parallelism in your code, Joy? Right. In my code, I used one API. So one API is a cross-industry, open standards-based unified programming model. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it helps developers with applying concepts like parallelization through one common language to various processor architectures. So one API uses the language data parallel C++, which you'll often hear us refer to as DPC++ to support its functionalities, uh, which is what I used in my convolution um, in parallel. And ultimately, it sped up my runtime pretty well. So I was able to take advantage of DPC++ there's parallel programming methods such as parallel for and wait and queues that will all come together to help, to help me accomplish this sort of parallelization. And so much like it helped me, I believe that one API will provide developers uh, faster application performance, more productivity, and hopefully greater innovation with that. Excellent stuff. Well, Beanish, you heard Joy talk about one API. Does one API have other advantages too? One of the other major advantages of using One API is the potential for writing your code in a common language that can be reused to run on different hardware architectures and possibly remove the hardware vendor lock-in. Historically, when developers needed to move their application to a new hardware or a target device that's based on a different architecture than what they were using, that would mean creating an entirely new code base specific to new hardware from a new vendor. That extra cost and delay is never welcomed, especially when organizations want to move at a faster pace and want to focus on offering better solution. And that's what OneAPI, including Intel's implementation of OneAPI, is trying to address. OneAPI aims to revolutionize application development through unified open development model to simplify programming across different architectures. Those architectures could be GPUs, could be CPUs, FPGAs, or even ASICs. And the goal here is threefold. Firstly, 
to increase application portability across diverse computing architectures. Secondly, raise developer productivity, which includes the ability to capture the vast number of developers that know how to code in C++. And now that knowledge enables companies to code for CPUs, GPUs, FPGAs, without having to learn three or more different language constructs. And lastly, and most importantly, deliver peak performance to high growth applications in data centers, edge, and cloud. Now, I do want to highlight that point here is the capability of having a functional code that runs on different compute architectures, but developers would still need to do performance optimization for their hardware of choice. So, Joy, what were some challenges that you faced during the code migration, and how did you address those challenges? Right. The immediate expectation for parallel programming is that it should run faster than doing the calculations linearly. However, it's a little more than simply this. And so when I first tested my new function on the image we were working on, it actually ran slower than the original brute force method. And that, of course, threw me off a little bit because it wasn't what I was initially expecting. But fortunately, I was able to use the Intel VTune profiler, which is a pretty incredible tool for optimizing system performance. It's also compatible with DPC++ and also comes free with the Intel One API-based toolkit. So if you want to use it, it'll all come together. But it helped me figure out exactly what was going on in my function. And simply put, there is understandable overhead that comes with running a program in parallel. And this overhead comes because we need to set up multiple threads that our calculations will be run on. And it involves the initial building or caching of the queue, for example. So when I factored out the setup time for the parallel method, it actually does run faster than the original. However, the build time is an inherent part of the operation being done and can't necessarily be factored out of the runtime so easily. So rather, those who do choose to do parallel computing should realize that the build time will stay the same no matter the size of the task at hand. So the payoff for parallel computing will grow alongside the size of the media it's being applied to. So in other words, if you run both the brute force and parallel convolution on a small image, like what I was doing, you may notice that the parallel method reflects no improvement or is actually slower than the original. But as the size of the image grows and you start to work with videos, for example, the parallel method will show a much more significant improvement. And so coming back to the question, a challenge I faced during the code migration was interpreting my own results and understanding why exactly I was getting them. DPC++ is an incredibly useful tool, but to really make the most of its capabilities, you should know exactly when and why you're using it. That's really, really interesting. And I think you did a great job describing that just that as the project grows, then the, then the benefit and the, the time savings that you'll see will, will grow as well. Um, is this the only way you can accomplish convolution and cross-correlation or, or is there a faster way? Are there other ways to do this? Uh, Joy, break that down for us. Yeah, that's a great question. And like with most problems, there are many ways to solve this one. Um, using parallel computing for convolution and cross-correlation, here's obviously a great option like we just described earlier, but it's not necessarily the best, nor is it mutually exclusive of the others. So for example, the number of calculations for convolution and cross-correlation can be significantly decreased by using fast Fourier transforms, which we can refer to as FFTs. And we can use the forward FFT, going into the math a little bit, we can use the forward FFT to bring the data into the frequency domain, where a lot of the values will become zero, and do the convolution or cross-correlation there 
apply a backward FFT to bring it back into the time domain. And hopefully we should see the same results as if we had calculated it without FFTs, but now a lot faster because we've decreased the number of calculations. So instead of writing your own, there are also a lot of FFT functions you can use, such as through OpenCL or the Intel math kernel library that you can download. And so using these FFTs speeds up the calculations that can be done instead of doing parallel computing. Or you can also do it in addition to parallel computing to minimize the runtime. So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that you'll notice how these two solutions are both a programming and a mathematical optimization, showing how we can find improvements in all areas and build on them to find the best method of going about things. You did a great job explaining that. And uh, yeah, that's that's really, really fascinating. So Binesh, I want to go to you to, to help us wrap things up today. What's a call to action you'd like our listeners to walk away with? What, what's something that you want people to walk away with and understand or do after they listen to this episode? There are a few things I would like to call out. Um, firstly, we have a couple of white papers related to our discussion. It's around fast Fourier transform and convolution in medical imaging reconstruction, as well as one API in healthcare where Joy defines in detail C++ to DPC++ migration. The easiest way to find them is go to software.intel.com and just type in my name, Binash Zia, and the paper should just pop up. So that's the easiest way. Secondly, if you are a developer interested in learning how you can make a difference with One API, I recently participated in a joint recorded presentation with GE Healthcare for One API DevFest on One API in Healthcare. You can find the whole recording, which gives a great information on how customers are using One API, and it can be found on software.seek.intel.com. And lastly, feel free to reach out to me at LinkedIn. I'm always looking to connect um, with others to discuss advancements in the space and other techniques to improve computational performance. Excellent stuff. Well, you both have been uh, such fantastic podcast guests here today. Binish Zia and Joy Yun, thank you so much for joining us here on this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Tyler. Absolutely. And everyone, thank you for tuning into this episode of the show. We hope you found it educational and entertaining to listen to as well. And like Bina said, be sure to reach out to her on LinkedIn for questions, for follow-ups. If you have uh, things that you want to follow up with about this episode and what you heard here today, make sure to go check in with her on LinkedIn. And stay tuned. We'll be back soon with new episodes of the show. But thank you once again to my guests. I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for joining us. 